Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I am Brian Bales. We're here to talk to you about the Bible. And specifically today, we want to talk to you about Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And as we look at these chapters, we want to encourage you to take out your Bible, if at all possible, uh, or just listen along, because we're going to be doing the reading for you as we walk through the book together. Um, We're really grateful for you to spend this time listening to our podcast today. And we want to encourage you to take a look at uh, some of the things that we've got going on right now uh, with our respective works. Uh, We want to encourage you to take a look. For example, I work with the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Our website is northcolumbuschristians.com. And, of course, they help support me and uh, other churches help support me in, in my work. And this is all part of that. This is, uh, this is time that is being spent in, uh, in co- uh, concentration on the Word of God and consideration of it. And uh, so I want to encourage you to check out their website, northcolumbuschristians.com. And uh, I'm from the uh, Savannah area in Georgia. I work with the Garden City Church of Christ, uh, just on the west side of the downtown Savannah area. Um, Website for that is GardenCityCoc.org. And as Stephen said, I would also encourage you to go to that website. But um, our website is is just slightly outdated. We have a Facebook page as well. Uh, So check us out on Facebook as well, uh, the Garden City Church of Christ. It would be Great if you're in town, if you ever want to visit Savannah, uh, to see you visiting with the congregation, uh, see you face-to-face. It's a popular spot for uh, brethren and for visitors to come by when they're you know, having a weekend vacation or wanting to spend some time out of town. So it would be great to see if, you, if you're ever in the area. All right. And on that point, if you ever happen to be in Columbus, Mississippi, it's not quite a vacation spot, but uh, if you ever happen to be in Starkville, Mississippi, uh, to see the Mississippi State Bulldogs, then uh, feel free to come up the road and visit with us at North Columbus Church of Christ, northcolumbuschristians.com. Um, also want to mention that we do have an email. You can email us at uh, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And uh, any kind of questions or concerns you have about the show, any ideas that you have, anything, maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we've got something wrong. Or uh, maybe you just want to give us a shout out. And uh, we want to certainly thank you for doing that as well. Um, Again, that email, walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. Well, with nothing else, let's go into our general reading. And we're going to do that in Genesis chapter 10. Both Bryant and I will be reading from the New King James Version. So I'm going to read Genesis 10, and then Bryant is going to read Genesis chapter 11.
Genesis 10. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Raphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Habila, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dadan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorium. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sanite, the Arvadite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almodad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Misha, as you go toward Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Chapter 11 Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. 
And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was one hundred years old, and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived five hundred years, and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived thirty-five years, and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived four hundred and three years, and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived thirty years, and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived four hundred and three years, and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived thirty-four years, and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived four hundred and thirty years, and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived thirty years, and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived two hundred and nine years, and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived thirty-two years, and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Reu lived two hundred and seven years, and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived thirty years, and begot Nehor. After he begot Nehor, Serug lived two hundred years, and begot sons and daughters. Nehor lived twenty-nine years, and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nehor lived one hundred and nineteen years, and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived seventy years, and begot Abram, Nehor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nehor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father in Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nehor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nehor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. So this is the part of the show where we want to talk about in- initial observations concerning these uh, chapters or whatever chapter we tend to be looking at. And uh, as we go into this, again, these are just the initial points that we pull from the reading. That's really important in Bible study to kind of pick up on that because uh, the things that, you know, sometimes people tell you your gut reaction is the one to go with. Uh, it's not always true, of course, but uh but there, there are some instinctual things that we can learn from and see, uh, some things that may just immediately jump out at us, and those can be profitable to see. So, Brian, what are some uh, initial observations that you have from these chapters? Well, one thing is just the genealogies themselves are very interesting. Um, so one interesting thing 
is that in chapter 11, the genealogy gets so specific as it begins mentioning the years that the people lived. And the genealogy in chapter 10 does not give the years that anybody lived. And I'll tell you why I think that's interesting. So in chapter 5 of Genesis, years were given to the sons of Seth. But in chapter 4, years were not given to the sons of Cain. In chapter 10 of Genesis, years are not given to the genealogies there. But in chapter 11, when we're dealing with the genealogy as it gets down to Abram, years are given. And it seems like there's a subtle theme of who God is paying more close attention to. Who is God more concerned about? So Seth's lineage, it's almost like God was keeping note of them year by year. I mean, God was so careful about watching these people, and he was so concerned about this lineage. And I think it's the same in chapter 11. It's like, once you start getting the years of their lives, it's like, okay, you know, God is clearly showing a greater concern for this lineage. He's actually keeping track of the years that these people are living and specific kinds of people that are coming from this. So I I just think that's kind of interesting, the parallel uh, between one genealogy has years given to it, one doesn't. It's like, it's almost like our attention is getting zoomed in as God's attention is zoomed in as well. That is really interesting. um, Because, I mean, obviously Jesus says that the very heads of your hair uh, excuse me, the, mm. the heads of your hair, the, the hairs <laughs> of your head are numbered. Right. And so, uh, the heads of your hair, <laughs> that's an interesting um, image. The, the, they're all numbered. Like it's the sense that, mm. uh, that he knows everything about us. Uh, but you know, um, obviously he's going to be closer to those who are closer to him. Right. Right. Uh, that's pretty natural. So that's a really astute observation. Yeah, I think another interesting to, to, uh, another interesting thing as well is in chapter ten, the genealogy concludes with division. Um, so, like verse thirty-two, it says, "Through this, the nations were divided." But then, chapter eleven, segueing into mm-hmm. chapter twelve, because chapter twelve doesn't really have a clear like break. It's kind of like the story is just continuing that started with the genealogies. So chapter 10 concludes with the earth Mm -hmm. being divided, and then chapter 11 concludes with Abram, through whom the earth would be united. So I think that's kind of interesting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've never, I'm not sure I've ever really noticed very much verse 32 until, you know, getting ready for this, for this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. It's it's still it's even looking forward to that point where they're they're divvying out they're going their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in in interesting thing about division when you think about that, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more uh, with the theme though. Um, division is not always a bad thing, right? And uh, we have to recognize that. And we can talk about that more in the next section. Any other uh, observations you want to throw in there? Yeah, I guess another general observation is it's kind of interesting that it's continuing the thread in verse, in chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Um, You know, there's all of these nations that come from Ham that are all terribly wicked nations. And, you know, there's these long lasting consequences to these choices that had previously been made. And I just think that's, that's kind of interesting how, um, 
you know, you see you see things that have been done before being continued through the names that are given here and the names of the places because of how those things relate to far distant future events that we know about, you know, that relate to these locations and the nature of those things. And just how chapter 11 ends with Abram and his family, Terah, going to Canaan. And Canaan is the one who is cursed in chapter 9, verse 24. So there's kind of some interesting things with how this all relates back to what happened in chapter 10 still. And then we'll continue through the rest of the Bible, really. Just kind of interesting how deeply it all connects together. Right. And, and you know, looking at what's going on here, you see Canaan's descendants kind of work out that way. Um, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed, and of course, what's easy to notice in chapter 11 is when God uh, speaks about... Uh, you know, us, right? Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, verse 7. And, uh, you know, the sense that that there is a plurality there uh, is interesting. And I wonder if there, you know, th- there's not really a whole lot of times in the Bible where God talks to himself in this way, uh, at least in this vague way, you might say. Because, hey, uh, Jesus talks to the Father. Um, There's some sort of communication between Jesus and the Holy Spirit because Jesus talks about him sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, But here he's literally saying us and them. um, Let us go down there. I wonder if in this context it it would have to do with what's going on, uh, you know, with the plurality of man. Mankind is trying to band together as one to make this thing. Right, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's really interesting that God is taking this time to say, you know, at this point He's saying us, mm-hmm. you know, referring to Himself, and of course that clues us in on there's something more going on with God than what we're initially seeing here, mm-hmm. and again we see this play out throughout the throughout the whole Bible, but uh, it is it is interesting to me, and it just kind of uh, came up to me as like, hmm, you know, what if what if him referring to himself as us is just something where he's trying to show us something in terms of what the people here are doing and what's mm-hmm. taking place? All right, as we get into the theme section of our episode, this is where we want to focus on the big things, the big questions, the big aspects of what we're reading. What does this mean in the greater context of the Bible? What does this mean in terms of what's going on with the with the people immediately in the passage? And uh, as, as we look at this, um, one of the things that I always look at in chapter 10 is Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod is an interesting character to me. Um, as you see the descendants of Noah coming down and through, through their, uh, through their lives, through their generations, 
And we see the sons of Japheth, it says in verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sense that these peoples are dispersing to some degree, but essentially seems to be staying in kind of the same place. Again, the sons of Ham coming out, uh, and the sons of Cush, you know, Cush begets Nimrod. And Nimrod who uh, is, again, a grandson of Ham, he becomes this guy who's called a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, I've understood previously, and I might be wrong on this, but I've understood previously that before the Lord can mean a positive uh, aspect uh, in terms of Leviticus, for example, when you talk about offering uh, your sacrifice before the Lord. But I also understand that before the Lord can take on a negative connotation, uh, depending on the context. Um, so what it seems like this might be, because again, I don't think what Nimrod is doing is something that is really glorifying God, uh, by the way. What's he doing? He's, he's making a kingdom. Now, obviously, there, obviously, at some point, someone along the way said, okay, We've got all these tribes. We've got all these different villages. Uh, why don't we put them all together? And we're going to band together, and we're going to form this kingdom. We're going to form something bigger than ourselves, and we're going to be a part of this together. Um, I would suggest that this at least is some of the inspiration of what we see in chapter 11. I mean, you see this going on. Uh, and it says that uh, the beginning of his kingdom in verse 10 of chapter 10 was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And then we see in verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 2, they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Uh, I can't help but see that as almost maybe the same situation. I don't really know for sure, but it's certainly related. Uh, it's the same location. It's the same people, it would seem. Um but the people in general are banding together in chapter 11 for that purpose. Um, but I think again, the sons of Ham, the sons of Canaan, uh, you know, uh, all these, all these fellows are showing us what happens when you put all this emphasis on worldly things, on earthly things. Um, I think that's the primary thing we see in chapter 10. Yeah, it is interesting. And, that context, you know, all of those cities were like terribly evil, like Nineveh was, you know, a terribly evil city. It was the capital city of Assyria, which was a violent nation that destroyed uh, northern Israel in the times when Israel and Judah were separated from one another and came up to destroy Judah in that night when uh, Hezekiah appealed to the Lord and the Lord sent an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Um, so, you know, these, these cities, you know, they lasted for a long time. And then Shinar is interesting, you know, and Babel, because Babel, it seems like was in the land of Shinar. And so obviously Babylon, you know, that ultimately is what became of Babel. And there's another nation that was used to punish, uh, Judah and they became, you know, just a, a mammoth of a world power. Uh, but then Shinar is interesting. There's a reference to Shinar in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 11. And it's, it's a fascinating reference because it's a vision that Zechariah is seeing of uh, a woman who is called wickedness, who is placed in a basket with a lead weight on top. 
And then the angel asks Zachariah, hey, do you know where this is being taken? And then it's being taken to Shinar. So it's almost like Shinar is the place where wickedness belongs, which is really just, there's some, just some interesting things with the way that these cities become types of wickedness and the power of wickedness, the place of wickedness. Um, you know, cause you also see, this is where the Canaanites came from. And obviously the Canaanites themselves, not only were a wicked people, but they were also a type of wickedness because God's judgment ultimately was against them in their land to replace that land with those to dwell in it who were righteous, who were his own people. So there's just a lot going on where it's like a lot of things in the Bible where God can insert these small details because of the bigger picture of things that he does. Those little details become very substantial and deep in ways that are just extraordinary, but it's because it's also deeply threaded together. And it's just amazing uh, just to see how those things progress, you know, through the Bible, kind of like the comment I made earlier. Yeah. And then obviously you see the start of many peoples that are going to give trouble to the Israelites mm-hmm. um, and really unnecessary trouble because we see down the way they're supposed to drive out or uh, completely destroy a lot of these people that have come up. And uh, yeah, that's uh, but, but, but there's so much time between now and, and those times that it becomes obvious that the people of Israel begin to look at them as like completely separate, um, rightly so, because that's what they're commanded by God. But of course, it also explains why they're able to uh, be led into a lot of this evil is that, you know, I have no doubt there was an appeal there that said, you know, going back far enough, we're all the same family. We all come from Noah. Um, and and would have been able to appeal to the, in those ways, but of course uh, that's that's a whole different conversation. But um, <clears throat> but it is interesting. You see Shem Shem again. I think you're right right on. Is that sh- the descendants of Shem, as we'll see in chapter ten, these are the ones that are going to be the 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 family lineage that's going to lead to good things. And I say lead to good things because uh, there are some things that we want to see about that. So verse twenty verse twenty one it throws in a really interesting detail because I can't remember if in chapter nine, if there were, if there was anything that said who was the oldest, who was the youngest, but verse 21 mentions that Japheth is the elder brother. So he's older than Shem, but remember chapter nine, verse 26, Shem is given the chief blessing. So the younger surpasses the older in receiving the chief blessing. And that's that's another pattern of Genesis. It's a theme of Genesis. The younger continuously surpasses the older. And again, it's one of those little details that because of the broader picture of God's consistency and his habits, that matters. And it's just really amazing to see that, you know, that there's this constant theme that think about Isaac, think about Jacob, you know, just over and over again, you see that playing out and, and Joseph and just Ephraim, Manasseh, you know, the same thing keeps happening through Genesis. Just interesting. Do you think that's mainly because God wants to show his standards as being different from the ways of the world? Because um, the general a- aspect, the general idea of the older, you know, the oldest child inheriting, 
I mean, that's just something that's just been understood throughout millennia. Mm. And, and that understanding is there. Um, do you think this is God just saying, you know, I'm going to be different from that? Uh, or if it's just a situation where he says, you know, this is, this is going to be distinct or just simply, this is the way that I want to do it. Yeah. I think, uh, I think ultimately the choice of the younger surpassing the older, um, uh, and I'll just maybe open this up and set it aside, but I think ultimately those continued choices in the book of Genesis typify God's choice of Jesus and the faithful remnant. Um, kind of like Romans 9, 10, 11, that, you know, God foreshadowed these choices that are made perfect in the New Testament through Christ, but he did that in many ways previously. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 brings up Ishmael and Isaac and brings up that Ishmael and Isaac and who they were typifies the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Even while they were both, in a sense, existing together, one was hostile to the other, and one was an embodiment of God's choice of his people of promise. So I think God's habit of choosing that demonstrates a habit that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, which is, that's even more mind-blowing. You know, that back with this book written by Moses, that Moses, in ignorance, was writing these things that had a broader significance to things that would come far after his own existence, thousands of years after his existence. And you don't really see the significance of it until Christ comes. And God chooses ultimately what we see to be those of faith in Abraham. Just fascinating. Yeah, and it's not the it's not the ruling class, mm. it's not the leadership or the eldership that has been there for so long, et cetera, et cetera. Uh God uh God is rejected by them. And so he goes with those who, who are interested in him. Mm. So very well very well said. Um as you know, looking at what ultimately happens here and I, I hope this doesn't sound too controversial, but I really look at the Tower of Babel as the first attempt by mankind to really have uh, at least some kind of world system or some unified system, uh, whether whether it's a system of government or whether it's a system of society. Uh, they're trying to band together in a certain way. And, uh, you know, I think people mischaracterize this passage. They, they want to try to say, well, you know, God didn't want any kind of competition. And so he just casts them down because he, you know, he just doesn't, you know, he sees this tower poking up in heaven. He's just like, ah, this isn't going to work. And, uh, but, but, you know, I think we do need to remember this is so core. And uh, I think people need to see this more often. Um, verse four really tells us the motivation here, right? Let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Number one, what are they trying to do? And number two, what are they trying to avoid? They're trying to make a name. They're trying to be known for something. And again, the problem would seem to be that they're trying to be known for something and they don't seem to really have much concern over God being known. Um, Secondly, avoiding being scattered. They, they, they don't want to be scattered. They want to be together. But that obviously becomes a problem because the Lord is recognizing that. He's seeing this. Um, 
And yes, the text says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Uh, but, you know, it's the sense where he is focusing his attention on this at this point. And it is kind of an interesting phrase, though, when he says in verse 6, uh, you know, this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Um, interesting thing to think about. Uh, and maybe this goes a little bit into the application. I don't mean to keep jumping ahead, but, you know, God's going to let us do whatever we want to do. Nothing's going to be withheld from us, ultimately. Uh, whatever you want to go out and do, you can go do it. The problem is, is it going to be something that God is going to look at as something that's good, uh, something that's useful, something that's good for you, really? It's not about what's... I, I would I would suggest, too, this is not about what's good for God here. I think this is about what he knows is good for these people. And I think that's what we kind of kind of need to see. Yeah, it's definitely uh, really interesting, everything that goes on here. Um, I guess initially mention uh, the division aspect of this, uh, where they were divided in their languages and divided in all the earth. And, um, you know, you really see that as a theme in Genesis, that God makes division himself. Um, and you see that even in Genesis chapter one, God divides light from darkness. He divides the sea from the land. He divides the sun from the moon. He divides day and night, you know, just you see that consistently throughout the book. You know, he made division between Seth's lineage and Cain's lineage. Um, he made a division between Noah and the rest of the people on the face of the earth. Uh, and what we're going to see as we go on is he's going to divide Abram from his family. You know, and God makes these divisions to protect his purpose. You know, God made the world, what we see in the New Testament, made very evident is God made the world for one purpose. And that was to get to the place where he could become one with his creation. And that unity was to come through Christ. You know, so if people, people coming together to make a name for themselves does not fulfill that predestined purpose that God has always had in his own mind. And unless we align ourselves with God's purpose, there's, there's no hope or substance. It's all vain, like Ecclesiastes. You know, you can seek the goods of this world. You can seek the pleasures of life. You can work and labor and do all sorts of things. But from God's perspective, you're spending yourself in vain because ultimately you'll lose your soul. You know, so it's interesting that God, to protect the purpose of how he would fulfill his plan, but even to foreshadow it, divided them out in this specific kind of way. And I guess we can talk more about that as we go on. But but yeah, just the, the nature of the division, I think, is is interesting, again, in the greater context of Genesis and God's plan and purpose that he's foreshadowing and working out. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh Chapter 11, verse 18, he said, First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Uh, other translations will say may be made manifest or, or appear true. Um, I think I think the point you have is well made, Bryant, that you know, all throughout the scope of the Bible— Division is not something that is bad in and of itself. Now, certainly, do we have uh, do we have situations that we see in the Bible where division takes place, and it doesn't have to happen? Absolutely. Did uh, did Joseph have to be divided from his family 
and sold into slavery. No, not really. But as he says at the end of the book, and not to spoil things too much, he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God can take something that's wrong, something that's evil, something that's bad, and use it for his purposes. Um, Now, we do see times where that sort of division is absolutely uh, condemned. Uh, John in uh, First John, I'm sorry, in Third John, roundly talks about Diotrephes, who was a Christian who was just judging people left and right and tossing people out on his own whims rather than uh, the dictates of the truth. And so we see those examples, but, uh, but I think we have to recognize that overall, division is a part of God's plan, at least throughout the scope of the Bible. And the purpose is to show those who are good, manifest those who are doing the right thing. And again, once this happens in the scope of what we're reading right here, after this is when we go into the genealogy of Shem. And the genealogy of Shem, of course, leads to Abram, who was going to be Abraham, who's going to be the father of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people throughout the course of the Old Testament history. You compare verse 3 compared to verse 7, and it's kind of interesting. There's similar languages between what the people say and what God says. Um, And it's interesting that for God to build, he first has to destroy what we're, we're attempting to build. So they want to build a city for their own name so that they can be united. In chapter 12, verse uh, 2, God tells Abram, I will make your name great. So there's going to be made a great name, right? But ultimately, the reason Abram's name would be made great is because Abram would glorify God's own name. Um, So it's just kind of interesting that in order to get to Abram, you first have to destroy Babel and the name of man. And that's really, that's like the story of our lives, isn't it? So we try to build a name for ourselves and we invest ourselves in that and we're all trying to do it together. But in order for us to really have God's name, which is the only substantial name, in order for us to take part in God's work, we've got to let him build his name his way, which means we've got to let our, our work be destroyed and brought into judgment. So anyway, on top of that, it's just kind of interesting as well that they had an intention, they had a purpose, and they were working to fulfill that purpose. And yet all God had to do is speak, and his intention, purpose, and work overthrew theirs immediately. And so they were completely at the mercy of God's allowance. So as soon as God spoke, they, it doesn't say that there was some kind of contention between them and God, or there was some kind of trial where they got to argue about God's decision-making process, or, you know, some people were overthrown by God's decision, but some people had a stronger will and just God couldn't overcome their will because they were so strong. No, I mean, as soon as God decided to separate their languages, it was done and it happened. So their intention, word, purpose, and power was completely at the mercy of God's allowance and his intention, word, purpose, and power. And that's just extraordinary. You know, so you can see that anything that they do is completely at the mercy of God's allowance and that God's purpose is able to overthrow our own. And that's that's another thing that relates to the new covenant is yes, we sin and we submit our will to all the desires of our flesh and ultimately toward the work of Satan. But God's word, work, purpose, and intention his power, if we submit to his word, his word is able to fully overcome 
every intention, every purpose, and every power that has been at work for sinful purpose in our lives if we just allow his word to do its work. So there's just, there's a lot of really amazing things in this little section here. And that's not even getting into how it's the antithesis of the church. You know, how God scattered the nations for their own name, but then in Christ, he brings the nations together completely for his name. There's just, there's so many deep and rich things here. It's just so amazing. You know, it, it is interesting when you, when you see, I mean, even the, a modern example, I think just about everybody out there, I'm, I'm not just, I know there are still some people that believe in it, but I think in general, people agree that communism was a failure. Mm. Um, and they saw the problems with that system and things like that. Um, but, you know, for example, in Acts chapter 2, what do you have in the early church uh, that is in Jerusalem at that time other than some aspect of what we might see as communal living, right? Everything they have, they're selling, they're giving the money to the apostles, the apostles are distributing that out, right? It only works if God is in control of it. It only works if God is in control. Uh, so the things that we try to do on our on our own, they're going to fail. Uh, Babel failed. Um, and, you know, again, modern things, uh, fascism, socialism, communism, it's going to fail uh, ultimately. Um, but the things of God always prevail, uh, regardless of what's happening. And again, I don't mean to get political there. I'm just saying that just in general, it's something that we can see. I mean, think about all the things that we try to do that God can do perfectly and completely. And, you know, you, you, you know, you raise up, I think what is a great point for us to consider actually is that, you know, if we're going to come together, if we're going to unify, it has to be on God's terms. Mm -hmm. It can't be on something that we've built. And in fact, people that call themselves Christians, they will come together and unify. You know, that's why you have, uh, for example, you'll have Catholic priests going into a Baptist church and uh, speaking there. And people will say, oh, this is a great show of unity and things like that. Well, you've unified. Yeah, you're together. But it's like the two drunks that are at a bar. They have fellowship, but they don't have the fellowship that God wants us to have. Um, so... Yeah, that's a that's a really awesome point to bring up here. And the power that God has. You know, we can see things being constructed in the world, um, and, and we may see some things out there that are just really ugly and maybe intimidate us. Um, Brian, I, at the time of this recording, um, there's been some recent uh, issues at Charlottesville from, from what I've heard and understood, uh, protests and things like that, some pretty ugly things. Uh, overall, and regardless of where we stand on that, the wonderful thing about that is we can take a step back from that and and understand that you know whatever people are doing, whatever people are are, are uh, bringing about in our life, I don't have to be intimidated by that. I don't have to be scared of that because I have a God who was able to scatter about the whole of mankind in one mm. instant. Um, he's the one I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting in mankind to save me. Hmm. So it turns out in verse 9 that that place is what was called Babel. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's the same Babel as chapter 10, verse 10? And that's like a legitimate question. I, I'm wondering what, what you think. Mm. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Well, that's, uh, I, would, I would venture to say it's the mm. same place. Um, I don't know 100%. 
But again, I like I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, you got Nimrod, he's building this kingdom. Part of his kingdom is Babel. Uh, and it's in the land of Shinar, same land, same place. So I wonder if, again, this is a Genesis 1, Genesis 2 kind of situation where we get a little bit in chapter 10, and now we're given a lot more about that situation. Um, So, hey, maybe Nimrod was the guy that that really pushed Mm. for the the tower to be built. Um, And then you've got this work stopped, and I think you you brought up earlier the possibility this this is – could be where Babylon came from. It's the same basic place. I mean, what have you got there? You got Nineveh. By the time that uh, Babylon becomes a threat to Judah, Nineveh is his capital city. Mm. And uh, I'm sorry. Nope. That was the Assyrians. It was the Assyrians. Anyway, <laughs> my point my point is mm. still there, in a sense, because Assyria was taken over by Babylon, uh, ultimately. So... Um, Regardless, what we have here is a situation that seems to be generally against uh, the work of God by magnifying the works of man. I think that's really what you see overall. Yeah, and it's interesting with with those thoughts that, you know, if, if Babel was what became Babylon, then you actually have a cycle of, like, again, like Genesis is the beginning. So, like, the cycles of Genesis continue to repeat through the biblical narrative, you know, and even until they're fulfilled with Christ in the church. So Babel, if it was Babylon, Babylon became a place where everybody was brought together. I mean, they became a, a world power that dominated, you know, the earth all around them. And they even, you know, dominated God's own people. And because of Babylon, people were scattered. God's people were scattered over the face of the whole earth. But just like God allowed, because he could have stopped what they were doing at any point. Like he could have heard the initial intention here, come, let us build. And God just right away says, nope, wrong intention. We're going to stop that right away. No, he let them exalt themselves. He let their power seem substantial so that he could nullify it in a way that magnified the exceeding glory of his power over that. So same with Babylon. Babylon became a world power. They had an exceeding degree of dominance it was an exaltation of the power and the might of man, and yet God overthrew it with a word. You know, he prophesied about the destruction of Babylon far beforehand. Once Babylon fulfilled the purpose that he desired for it, it was done, and Babylon was no longer a nation. And I think that principle also applies to Satan himself, that God allows Satan to have a measure of power, to seem powerful, to seem intimidating, and everybody ultimately is brought under one under the umbrella of Satan's dominion. And God with Christ and Christ being the word, um, you know, God easily overthrew with his intention, with his purpose, with his power and with his word. He completely overthrew uh, the power of Satan and all his dominion. And from that, you know, started his kingdom, which with with which he built his own name, just like the process here. So it's like it just kind of seems like this is a cycle that repeats itself in some pretty magnificent ways in, in, in principle, you know, and the fact that Christ ultimately became the word where through his submission to the will of Satan and to the will of man and man wanting to make their name great, man wanting to exalt themselves, that through that intention, God nullified that intention and proved the power of his intention over that. That's just, wow, it's just so mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it again proves the power and the sovereignty of, of God, the sense yeah. that... 
he has this amount of power. And in the fact is, again, I would I would venture to remind our listeners as well, you know, especially those of you who may have uh, uh, Calvinist leanings uh, or anything like that. Maybe maybe you know, sometimes you you don't know, and still you do uh, have Calvinist leanings. Um, it was only through free will choice in that that God is glorified because if these are things that just God put together and God, you know, forced them to do these things and program them in these ways, um, guess what? We just become pawns and, uh, it's only through our free will actions moving along with what he wants, regardless of what we do. Uh, that glorifies him really because, it's a sense where, okay, you want to do this? Yeah, you do that. Go ahead. And he lets these people build up this tower to some degree, and then he scatters them. Mm. And again, the scattering brings about good things. And then you see from this, Shem's descendants go on. There's really not a whole lot I have to say there, except that you know you see Abram come about, and it is interesting that Abram's father, Terah or Terah, is in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Mm. Mm. Now, I did a little bit of reading. I say a little bit uh, in prep of this. Um, the Chaldeans are referred to in the time of Babylon, mm. uh, in the empire of Babylon, mm. later on in the Bible. So are these the same Chaldeans? That would be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because that would mean that Abraham left these people and went along and, and, and began to follow God, mm. began to follow the one true God. Mm. And then later on, these same people consumed back, you know, <laughs> it took captive those people. Mm. And then they were returned to their homeland later on, of course, by, by some other decrees. But, um, but that's kind of interesting to me that all the way back here, you've got Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, when, uh, again, kind of jumping forward here, when Joshua is telling the people once they've uh, inherited the promised land, they've got all, all, you know, everything, all the land uh, taken care of. In Joshua 24, he says, you know, choose this day whom you will serve, whether you serve the gods of your fathers beyond the river. And who was that? You know, uh, it wasn't the gods of Egypt because they never worshiped, they never served the gods of Egypt. But Abraham and his family served the father's, uh, their, uh, excuse me, serve the gods of their fathers in Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, so, and there's there's a lot of interesting archaeological stuff that you can mm-hmm. go into if you kind of look around. Uh, especially, um, Leon Malden's website has a lot of stuff about that. Mm-hmm. He's got like a whole article about uh, Ur, and he's been there and seen what would seem to be. Uh, the remains of a worship area of uh, of that place, and so could have been likely that Abram's family had worshipped in that area. Mm-hmm. So, really interesting mm-hmm. there. But what do you think about that? No, yeah, it does seem like Abram had to come out of an idolatrous culture to serve the one true and living God, which makes his faith even more amazing. Then, um, especially with his faith not being based on anything miraculous, you know, God didn't you know, throw stars in front of his face in the next chapter or call down fire from heaven or, you know, he didn't do anything amazing. He just said, Hey, go do this and I'll do this. And like, 
he believed it. You know, so that, that's just really amazing. I do want to share this. And I think I think this kind of gets back to really overall in these two chapters, what we're looking at is the sense that what's our focus on? What's mm. our whole ambition? Am I focused on glorifying God or am I focused on glorifying myself or someone else, you know, some other person? Um, really, what this tells us is that if we seek his glory, then we're going to be blessed. Uh, in Romans 2, in verse 6, Paul makes this statement, uh, talking about God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God. That is a amazing statement. When we think about the implications of this, when we think about the fact that all these people came from the same family and, and, and that's essentially what I know that's not exactly what Paul is saying, but he is saying in a sense that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek if you do the right thing and seek God, guess what? You're going to get everything that the people who built the Tower of Babel thought they wanted. You're going to get everything that Nimrod thought he wanted. Uh, and the fact is, he wasn't seeking the right kind of glory, the right kind of honor, the right kind of immortality. And if we seek that on God's terms, how much greater is that glory, honor, and immortality than the petty stuff that we can get here on the in, in the earth, you know. Again, it's a question of: Am I going to have this fake little play unity? Am I going to have this fake little little uh, fellowship among people and and play and act like we're all together? And uh, when we're not, we're not because the fact is, if if you're not unified by God, you're not unified. You're not together. You're just you're like a little you're like little children playing with toys. Uh, in in the scope of the Lord, because He brings us together, He ga- gathers us together in His Son, and in that He elevates us, He He glorifies us, He gives us honor, He gives us value, He gives us peace, He gives us immortality ultimately. And so, uh, but of course, I think we could characterize a lot of the people that we saw in chapter ten and eleven as people who are self seeking, uh, who are you know really pushing for things that are just not what God wants them to push for. Um, it is interesting, though, in terms of uh, sort of the graceful attitude of God that we don't have a whole lot here as far as wickedness per se, but it really is implied that this is just not something that God is interested in, in, in putting up with. Doesn't seem to be, certainly doesn't seem to be as bad as the situation before the flood, but uh, but it just seems like there's a, there's a, misfocus there's a there's a misdirection mm-hmm. of what they're doing so 
we need to be seeking his glory, not our own. Uh, what, what are some other applications that you might see, Bryant? I think kind of like what you were saying, you know, the hard thing is when you really invest yourself in something, it's hard to turn away from it because you've gone so far with it and it seems like it's been so productive, you know. But the reality is what's manifested here that when God calls into judgment those intentions and motives, it's over. You know, in Genesis 11 wasn't the time for God to manifest eternal judgment, but that's what he's talking about in Romans 2, is that nature itself and the visible world, not even with his word, is sufficient to demonstrate that we will be held accountable. I mean, we have systems of law, we have systems of government, and I may invest myself into certain activities, but if they're unlawful, when the government chooses to call that into question, it's over. You know, justice is going to be served and I'm going to have to answer for that. And that's like what was happening here. You know, we we invest ourselves in our own lives. But when God speaks and when God calls us to undo any work we've been doing or anything we've been investing ourselves in, we have got to let God's word reign over our will. And we have to do the work of faith, which is to die to our thoughts, ideas, intentions and works and let God's will reign in our lives. Um because we have to see through the deceptions of what seems to be profitable and productive. I've even been thinking recently just about industry. Like you look around and like the world is obsessed with the pursuit of industry, you know, and and there's, there's a purpose that can be used in righteousness, but the obsession over industry, you know, and fulfilling cravings and seeking pleasure and getting gain, like all of that is so completely worthless And it's only those who are righteous, who are humble and lowly, who can get the benefit of doing God's work and will through those things. But that's what you see they were obsessed with in chapter 11 was just worldly industry. You know, so we need to understand that worldly industry is not something that truly has substance. It all will be burned. It's all going to be lost. And the only thing that will remain is God's building project, his church, his people, um, so just seeing seeing those things in this, it's like God gives us, he gives us pictures. He gives us scenarios to make hard principles more real and approachable. And I think this, how this all works out, it gives us something to picture and understand that makes those greater principles more approachable and understandable. Yeah. The balance of that, of course, is that... Uh... <sighs> I mean, you don't see any war between the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Ham and Japheth, mm, right? Mm. Um, there, there's no sense where Shem is like, stop working on that, stop that, you know. Uh, again, I get from that, uh, and again, you see this borne out in the New Testament, we're leading a quiet life, mm, uh, mm. we're unassuming people, we're humble people, right. that's what Christians need to be, people people of God need to be, what people of God have been throughout all the t- all time. Uh, right. Moses didn't turn around and try to destroy the the kingdom of Egypt. Um, they just they just want to be left alone to do their thing, right? And the the interesting balance here is that while industry and all these worldly things are not our focus, we can still use these things. Um, you know, I think. For example, Bryant and I are Skyping while we're doing this Bible study, while we're recording this. Uh, we're using our computers. We're using technology. So it's an interesting balance. We can make use of these things, proper use of these things, uh, for the glory of God. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we begin to delve into this thought that that becomes the central dominant force of our life, and that influences us to a point that we we push everything else away, and especially when we push God and his people away for the sake of that, that's when we've got a problem. And so uh, very, very well said. Yeah, because I was even, I was talking to a man who's homeless yesterday, who I've gotten to meet a couple of times because he, he hangs out regularly at a place that, uh, you know, that I go, you know, usually once a week right now. And, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about the Bible and, you know, even though he's homeless, his mind right now, just like what we were just talking about, is fully fixated on the industry of life, even though he's homeless, because he wants to get involved in that industry. He wants to have a home. He wants to have an income. And there's no problem with that. Like, have a home, seek an income, like all that's all that's good. But it gets to a point where no matter if you're homeless, no matter if you have a home, no matter if you're comfortable or uncomfortable, there's still in all those different people, there's this desire, like Stephen was saying, to obsess over worldly industry and success. And God's trying to call us to pull back on that, like we've just been talking about, to come out of idolatry, because that's ultimately what this was, is this was idolatry. And God's trying to bring us into that balance that Stephen was just talking about. And we, we really need to come face to face with, you know, just the reality of idolatry and just how much an offense idolatry is against ourselves and our purpose and God and his purpose so that we can be humbled and we can understand the glory of exalting, praising and honoring God as God and giving him the due thanks in Romans chapter one, where the process begins of idolatry is instead of turning away from God's glory, praise, and honor, we turn back to it. Very good. I, I can't really say anything to that, except I can completely wholeheartedly agree. Well, again, we're really thankful for, for you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Again, if you want to email us, walking through the book at protonmail.com, and we want to encourage you to visit our websites, which you'll hear just momentarily. Thankful for your time. Uh, thankful for your time, Bryant, of course, and, uh, uh, hopeful that we can do this again very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Very encouraging. Very good. Very good. Next time, Lord willing, we'll be talking about Genesis chapter 12. Until then, study well and be lights to his glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.